Hello and welcome to part two of our three-part mini-series on The Pill. In this episode, Chris delves into the legal underpinnings of women's right to access contraception, including the pill. She explains the details of a number of the seminal cases in the US, which have hugely shaped legislation in relation to birth control, and also highlights where the law is still lacking. We also touch on the influence of the church in health policy and when it comes to prescribing the pill. Chris is just an absolute fountain of knowledge on this topic, and I love seeing her legal mind at work here. I definitely learned so much during this episode, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed recording. Hi! What's up? Hello. I'm Chris. And I'm Heather. And this is the Overreacting Podcast. Calm calm down, dear. Calm down. Calm down. Listen. Listen to the doctor. Calm down and listen to the doctor. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. No, our motto is... When they go low, we go high. American medical and scientific funding sources um, through, honestly, a lot of American universities. So what's allowed to happen in the U.S. and the relationship between the church and the government and the views from a policy standpoint that we have very heavily inform what's possible here and what will continue to be possible. So it's, yeah, for those of our listeners who aren't from the U.S., who actually I think might be most of you, <laughs> my apologies. I think about half. Is it about half? Half? Oh, yeah. I just said it like you do. Oh, no, sorry. No, it is most. It is most. Sorry, I'm no, but I also just mimicked your accent there. That was weird. I was like, that's not how I say the A vowel. <laughs> I said half. That was fun. Anyway, I might do that more often. Um, that was cheeky. Anyway, um, <laughs> so that's why this is coming at uh, this conversation from a, a very American-centric angle. Um, but a lot of what I'm about to say, I'm sure, can be extrapolated. Actually, I know it can be extrapolated to a lot of different national contexts. Yeah, I mean, speaking as an Australian, direct on-flow effects from American Which culture to, yeah. Pretty much any European state. Canada like it's all it's all here but this only explicitly applies in the U.S. so here's a few things I will say in terms of the larger spectrum of religion's role to play here in the U.S. we have this idea that we live in a country that separates church and state and that is uh, I'm just gonna say not true that's not in practice what we're seeing um Like, God might not appear in our founding documents, although I think actually it does appear in the Declaration of Independence, um, but might not appear in our actual legislative documents. But religions played a huge role in the U.S. from its founding and this idea that, like, God had ordained the the freedom of the American colony from Britain and that rhetoric at the founding. It was used again to get the U.S. from, you know, quote, coast to coast, sea to shining sea, whatever the fun quip you want to use is there, um, but to expand, and I mean, think about it logistically, to get people to move, quote, out west um, to populate the U.S. and, frankly, colonize the U.S. from the East Coast to the West Coast was all done under this narrative of manifest destiny and the idea that, like, God wanted, because he really really cares about what uh, oceans the U.S. borders, so 
this idea that like we needed to reach from the east coast to the west coast was that was a hugely religious specifically protestant movement coming out of sort of the mid-atlantic to midwest stretch and then again in the 1900s with the cold war you see language like under god being included in the pledge of allegiance which is already a super nationalistic thing that we do as it is we already swear our legislatures in on the bible up until very recently across the board and now you see a bit more nuance but still largely sworn in on the bible so it's it's not in reality a a country that effectively separates church and state so it shouldn't be surprising to us that that rhetoric and that belief system very very strongly influences uh laws and governance and policy so with that backdrop what the Catholic Church specifically, because that's sort of the, the largest, loudest voice in this regard, but what religion generally has to say about uh, women's rights and specifically in relation to contraception, birth control, abortion, etc. It's baked into the conversation because even if you're not explicitly talking about religion, the views of the people that you're engaging with uh, that take a more antagonistic view of these issues take those views largely because of religion. So you can't get around it is, is the bottom line. Okay, so yeah. we're also not talking about abortion specifically right now because we're going to do a separate episode on that, but it's, it's, all, it's all baked into this. Like, it's, it's implicitly entwined in this conversation as well. Contraception mm -hmm. is maybe slightly less controversial, or I will just say it is less controversial, but it's still part of that inherited rhetoric, um, and therefore, you know, all gets, all gets thrown in the same basket. Could, could I just jump in quickly with one thing, though, about the where abortion infringes on I guess design for contraception mm -hmm. as well is that um, there's been some proposals in the design of pills that to rather than being administered across the whole cycle um, this is all uh, things that have never been developed but there's like concepts and proposals for if you could just target the the days um, where conception is possible um, and the, the possibility of different forms of contraception that essentially dislodge an egg that has embedded in the uterine lining. But yeah, the reason that there's been no development or funding gone into these um, you know, decades into history is that that subtlety of is it um, dislodging, in a sense, conception borders too closely on the concept of abortion. And so that's why the design of these you know, pills and things specifically needed to be for the purpose of suppressing ovulation because that is considered distinct enough to the concept of abortion. Mm -hmm. And this is, could just be me as a law student, but I think the, the nuance of language that you see in uh, specifically Supreme Court decisions that are ruling on when is abortion okay? When is it not okay? When is something even technically an abortion? When is a fetus viable? Yeah. Why does viability play into whether or not abortion is permissible? Um, and yeah. all of the things that, uh, of course, are trying to balance there. Mm -hmm. And strongest example probably there of this gray zone is the morning after pill. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and also the question of as science advances, where that line is gets pushed further and further back, right? And, like, I'm a preemie, frankly. I was born about three months early, which is, I mean... Really? At the time. Yeah, almost uh, two and a half months. I was born, like, two and a half months early. I was this, like, itty-bitty little, little bean. Oh, 
So yeah. yeah. So it's just funny because I mean, not it's funny in like a. I'm a full sized human. My parents actually have this theory that the reason I'm such a nerd is because I physically couldn't do shit for like the first several years of my life. So I just kind of like sat there and looked around at the world. I just couldn't do shit. Wow. I was just you know my brain was the only thing that got any kind of exercise. Which totally, if you know me, really tracks with my athletic ability. Um, really maps onto that beautifully. But anyway, thanks, Mom and Dad. Um, but I do think the whole abortion conversation is, from a personal standpoint, very interesting. Because, I mean, I was born at a time when, historically, if a fetus had come out of a mother at that time of gestation, the fetus wouldn't have lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think this is an area where once everyone has all the facts, they'll just agree. Right? Like, there are some areas of science where, like, I really do think if everyone had all the same information to work with, if everyone could be equally informed and given the same tools and resources and access, etc., to have all the info, they'd all reach the same conclusion. Oh, climate change is real, for example. Um, like, there are some things that are just true, and there's not really room for a back and forth. Mm-hmm. When you start talking about things like contraception and abortion, Specifically, um, I do think you get into gray zones pretty easily where two very smart, very well-informed, very well-intentioned people could perfectly reasonably come out very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, So how you have those conversations and where you draw those lines between what's an obvious yes and no and what kind of space you give to that gray zone and how you legislate it and allow for it to exist as what it is and not sort of push it inorganically towards one side of the line just for you know efficacy's sake is really important and a really hard conversation to have and nothing that we're saying here is trying to minimize how challenging that is and how important having those conversations is mm-hmm. um, unless you're taking literally Pope Innocent's view that any waste of semen is uh, is sinful which <laughs> <laughs> try me with that gents I dare yeah. you like fucking yeah you try to sell me that go for it like i dare you um any any discussion you hear of a woman who's pregnant whether like it's she's unmarried or whether she's pregnant and a teenager um or just all of the conversation around that like why isn't the conversation about both parties involved yeah definitely because we know it never is right i don't i mean we could like Go cite some statistics, but actually, I don't even think we need to because that's just so overwhelmingly obvious. The thing that's being targeted here is like the woman's moral culpability in the thing. It's her fault. She got mm-hmm. pregnant. And it's like, she didn't, though. <laughs> that was a yeah. group effort. And <laughs> conversations about contraception that focus on the woman from this like moral culpability framework that you inherit from, frankly, religion um, ignores. The fact that there are multiple parties involved here who are equally, if nothing else, culpable and involved uh, in what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it ignores the fact that it's very naive to think that the only reason women need contraception or should have contraception and the only barrier to access that it's overcoming is this issue of, of unintended pregnancy. Although that is a huge issue. But I mean, I could never have sex again. And if you took contraception away from me, I would not be able to function in, an, in a normal adult society. 
I wouldn't have been able to go to law school. I certainly wouldn't be able to sit the bar. I wouldn't be able to work in any kind of professional capacity. Uh, because for several days every month, I would be on my ass, writhing in pain, maybe unconscious. I just think it's a useless endeavor to inherently tie this to sex when it's so much bigger than that, and it's so much more than that. And anyone that's trying to couch the conversation in those narrow terms is either being willfully ignorant of the bigger picture here because it serves your prerogative, mm -hmm. or you just don't care and haven't taken the time to find out how complicated and multifaceted an issue it is. And in either of those cases, that's just not a side of an argument I'm willing to engage with. If, if half of my reality for why this is important isn't something you're even willing to engage with and put yeah. on the table. And I think when we talk about this, something I find really interesting is, like a lot of the examples Heather's describing, it makes the religious component here seem almost like an, an old-timey problem uh, mm -hmm. or something that has very distant consequences. And I can't stress enough how much that's not true uh, because even in, in the 2000s, like not just in our lifetime, but actually in our, live, like in our conscious memory, um, in the U.S., for example, there were just two examples. There's something called the Church Amendment and the Coates Amendment. Uh, and both of those invoke what in the U.S. is called First Amendment protection of religious freedom to allow doctors, based on religious belief, not to have to, A, share information regarding contraception to their patients, B, not disclose to their patients that there might be information about contraception that they are withholding based on their religious beliefs. Whoa. C, refer those patients to another doctor, even inexplicably, uh, to then have those doctors tell them that there's this information regarding contraception. And also D can, I mean, willfully ignore conditions related to contraception or related to problems that contraception could solve if that would be the answer. Um, so like if I happened to go to one such doctor as say a 13 year old and very clearly had severe side effects from menstruating and the very obvious answer would be to put me on the pill, that doctor doesn't even have to tell me that that's a thing that could happen. They don't have to tell me that this exists as a solution. They don't have to tell me that they aren't telling me that there's a solution based on their religious beliefs, but someone else might if I go to a different doctor. They don't have to have me find that other doctor. Um, they are not in any way obligated to present any of that information to me uh, under First Amendment religious freedom protections. And that's a problem uh, because those protections apply to, for example, any religiously affiliated hospital in the country. And 40% of hospitals in the U.S. have a religious affiliation. Predominantly a Christian religious affiliation. And most of those are in places that have a lot of much less well-educated, less resourced, um, more rural communities where this information isn't widely available anyway you know like if my doctor hadn't told me about the pill I probably would have heard it excuse me heard about it the next day from a classmate or a year later from a classmate mm -hmm. and those amendments have been defended re like recently 
um, as a matter of policy. So this is, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is a big problem and it's a now problem. That's really interesting. I didn't know about those amendments in America, but as you were speaking, it reminded me (laughs) of a similar thing quite recently in Australia that I have just real time Googled and found uh, an article by The Guardian, which I remember reading a while ago. Um, When was it? 2019. So essentially following the same-sex marriage survey in Australia, and finally same-sex marriage going through, yay! (laughs) Um, Big win. Pushback from religious groups uh, then came in the form of having legislation to protect religious freedoms. And there was a... um, Bill proposed by our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, the Religious Discrimination Bill, and it outlined a bunch of um, recommendations that he wanted to pass as religious protections. And I've just found the dot point that I remembered from a while ago, very pertinent. So it says, example of things that can be instated if this bill were to pass. I don't think it passed, but I need to check that. Mm. It says, um, a Catholic doctor refusing to provide contraception to all patients or to prescribe hormone treatment for gender transition, or a Catholic nurse who refuses to participate in abortion procedures or to provide the morning after pill to a woman admitted to hospital after a sexual assault are things that could be protected. Oh, oh, I know. Wow. That just, that just hits you right in the gut, doesn't it? And then, da, 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 um, we have, in 1972, the Supreme Court came down with the decision in Griswold v. Connecticut, which was a case uh, that basically we had mentioned up until this point, contraception was approved, but it was only allowed to be consumed by married women, uh, going back to the obscenity laws, because, you know, women with birth control are going to have sex. <laughs> <gasps> and we sex. don't want premarital sex. Eh. That was just that was the purview under which birth control had been permitted up to this point. And Griswold v. Connecticut comes down, and I don't know that it actually even meant to do this, but effectively makes birth control uh, accessible to everyone. And when you look at like consumption of birth control or or how much was being produced and purchased and whatnot. Um, there's like that initial spike after the FDA approves it uh, among married women. I think it was, I forget the number, but it was like millions of married women very immediately started consuming it. Uh, Cause it turns out there was demand for this <laughs> shocker. Uh, and then after Griswold v. Connecticut, there's another huge, like, uh, like vertical increase because so basically Griswold v. Connecticut, you had a doctor, Dr. Griswold, um, who's a woman. I think her name was Ellen Griswold. And a colleague of hers that had a clinic that were giving advice to married couples who maybe didn't want to have kids at that time for whatever reason um, and were also prescribing contraception to non-married women. And this violated the da-da-da Comstock laws. Uh, in that case, uh, the state of Connecticut had its own iteration of the Comstock laws that was very targeted at contraception. And they were like, what Griswold's doing is illegal. She can't do this. Um, I think they weren't in prison. They were just fined. Um, they were given a monetary penalty. But um, the case got appealed up through the court system um, and then eventually landed in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, first of all, that Comstock laws, uh, the Connecticut ones, but also then by iteration, the Comstock laws generally as a concept, 
violated the right to marital privacy, which mm. is an in, I'm not going to get too con law here, but I something I think is really interesting in the U.S. standpoint. Going back to what we were talking about earlier about the sort of precariousness of contraception as an industry uh, that is able to continue. Uh, producing in the way that it is, uh, both from like a literal, like making the physical pill standpoint, but also producing the research and the scientific progress uh, in the field writ large, is its backing isn't actually as substantial as more progressive uh, women's rightsy people maybe would like. And the reason for that is the court said, so you have this right to marital privacy, which is wild because like if you look at the constitution, you don't. That's not a thing that it says. Um, but the good news is I hate textualism, uh, so that doesn't matter because really what they're getting at in saying that there's you have this right to marital privacy is they're like, well, if you look at all these different rights. So yeah, so what I think is interesting about the Griswold hold, and not just what I think is interesting, what is interesting, what the Supreme Court does is it takes what's called a bundling approach. It bundles all these other rights um, or the the overarching theme in these other rights. So the First Amendment protects, you know, freedom of speech, expression, um, assembly, petition, religion, da da da, da. Um, Fourth Amendment, protection against uh, unreasonable search and seizure. That's also been used to protect your right to privacy in a, in a more almost European sense once you start getting into, like, data privacy and stuff. Not very well, not very effectively, but, like, has been used that way. Fifth Amendment, prevention of self-incrimination. And then you have the Ninth Amendment, which says that any of the this isn't an exhaustive list, right? Anything not mentioned here, like, it, you could have more rights than this. And the court essentially bundles these things together and is like, we're going to infer from this that you have a right to privacy. Because all these things, what they're really getting at is you get to function as, like, a private human safe from government intervention. And the Comstock laws, their government intervention. They're doing the kind of thing here that we're saying collectively we're not okay with. And so they find them unconstitutional, which is huge and which is why Comstock laws get struck down and now you have none of these limitations on who can take birth control, which is, again, enormous. Can't emphasize enough why we're here. Yeah. Literally, like, yeah. big deal. Sorry, what year was this, did you say? This was 1972. And also, again, like in my mom's lifetime, which mm -hmm. I like when my mom and I talk about this, I find this really interesting because she was born yeah. in 56. So... A lot of this is stuff that she's actually lived through, which means, like, we have had indisputably, categorically different lives from, like, an opportunity standpoint. Because she lived in a time and was my age in a time when all of these restrictions were still in place. Which, again, wild to me how recent this is. And also, the Griswold ruling is really kind of precarious because it, it didn't couch this protection in anything very concrete. Um, anything really concretely tied to the Constitution. Um, and since then, there's been no legislation passed from Congress that says, <laughs> hey, guess what? You have a right to have agency over your reproductive choices and your reproductive health, etc. So all this is to say is in, when state laws in the U.S. that have really, really scary restrictions to abortion, like you were saying, like not just is there no morning after pill if you've been sexually assaulted, there's no... Um, abortion for victims of rape, there's no uh, abortion for victims of incest, like really scary abortion laws. And all of these things are protected under the progeny of Griswold, which is also Roe v. Wade, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of in these other cases. Um, Maybe just quickly explain what Roe v. Wade Oh, sorry, Roe v. Wade, which is the Supreme Court case that essentially 
protects abortion as a as a element of the right to privacy or something that's covered under the right to privacy. Um, a woman's relationship with her doctor is private, and therefore the government can't uh, infringe on that and legislate in a way that limits uh, women's access to abortion. So all of these protections are teetering on this very precarious little top of what a lot of people have called really dubious backing in terms of, uh, from a constitutional interpretation standpoint, and weren't supported by legislation in the way that I think at the time a lot of people were expecting. This was viewed yeah. as what would be the beginning of a big wave of legislation uh, to mm -hmm. bolster this view and this protection, and that never happened. People kind of took the victory and ran, um, and the, the political will to keep hacking away at this yeah. wasn't there. And actually, if you watch, there's a really great, it's not a docuseries, it's a, it's fiction, but it's built around, um, real events. It's called Miss, or it's just called, I think Miss America oh, yeah. with Kate um, Blanchett and this really wildly rock star cast on Hulu. Mm -hmm. We wanted to watch that as a house, um, but we accidentally started from the last episode oh, no. thinking it was the first and we were so confused. Oh, you gotta, it's, I mean, <laughs> but I will start from you gotta start. start from the beginning. It's actually about the Equal Rights Amendment um, in the U.S. and the women's mm -hmm. group that was really, the conservative yeah. women's group that was really involved in, in resisting it, um, who Kate Blanchett yeah. plays the leader of just like so flawlessly, in my opinion. But it focuses a lot on the behind-the-scenes political conversations that, I mean, Gloria Steinem was participating in, asking, mm -hmm. is this our hill? Like, are we, as a, as a woman's movement, is this the thing we're still after? Or are we satisfied with the protection provided by the court in this capacity. Um, and for a lot of expediency reasons, I think, and justifiably at the time, because you only had so many, you know, minutes, publicly speaking, to work with here, um, the answer was yes. But where that leaves me concerned and a lot of, I mean, where I think that leaves us concerned generally as, as women, is that even though we're living in a world where the de facto protection of these rights lets us live our lives, you know, consuming uh, these these privileges and these protections uh, as rights, they're not necessarily that assuredly enshrined. And that's really scary when you think about not just in the U.S. context, but when you think about the fact that the U.S. is the biggest exporter of scientific funding, research, development of most forms of contraception, the fact that the ability to do that in a non-criminalized conduct, because again, was criminalized until in a lot of states in the 1970s, I'm not satisfied with that footing. <laughs> I'd yeah. like to be standing on solider ground there. <laughs> this is like when people are like, why are we still fighting? You have rights. Like, uh, only just. Only, yeah. only barely. And that's, I don't know, that's, I think that's not enough for us <laughs> yeah it's so important to understand I didn't have a sense of the vulnerability of it all definitely it gives a different darker tone to the um hands made tail memes floating around oh yeah during the Trump yeah. Trump presidency um definitely mm -hmm. gosh mm -hmm. yikes I mean it's why I went and got an IUD oh. which turned out to be a terrible decision <laughs> for reasons we'll talk about later <laughs> um for my own reproductive health but there we are what you were saying earlier about creating a distinction for reasons to be going on to the pill, reasons distinct from simply contraception. Uh, I think it is really important to uh, talk a little bit more about the whole host of reasons that uh, women choose to go on the pill, women are prescribed the pill for medical reasons. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was wild the reaction I got 
when I went on the pill because like parents, friends, like people had a reaction to it. Like, oh, you're putting your daughter on the pill. Um, yeah. And the fact that there was like, and the fact that it had to be like elaborated they're like, oh, no, 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 it's for medical reasons, like that that was an option, when for me, again, as, as a young teenager, like 12, 13 years old, my life was completely debilitated by my period. Like it was, I can't stress this enough, it was ruled by my period. Um, I'd get really bad cramps even between cycles, so it was like every two weeks I was in an active amount of pain. Um, and if it was like the first three or so days definitely the first two days, sometimes the first three days of my period, I would be in so much pain that I'd miss school. Um, I'd pass out. I, you know, I, I was terrified of being in any kind of like public space away from like all of the things that I needed to kind of like stabilize myself at that moment. Cause like I'd have a super heavy period. I couldn't like the little like janky tampons that you'd get from like friends like the little tiny ones because again I'm 13 so all my friends have like the little like ultra slim tampons and those are like a joke to me <laughs> like those those are just like that was like a q-tip I was like what do you want me to do with this um <laughs> what the fuck's that gonna do against this like Niagara Falls situation um it's <laughs> just this is not helpful um and like nothing no infrastructure for a 13 year old in middle school and high school is built around what was happening to my body. So whether it was like teachers not letting me go to the bathroom enough when I'm like, I'm literally, there's just going to be blood on the seat. Like you can let me go to the bathroom or there's just going to be a pool of blood when I stand up. <laughs> like those are your choices. Oh but like, God. I'm not going to say that to my teacher. I'm fucking, I'm 10. Yeah. No, I'm not 10, but I'm really little. Yeah. Um, and it's like, oh, you can't have the bathroom pass. Like you need to wait and not being able to be like, what the fuck? Um, so just every, like it was so anxiety inducing and there was so many things around it. So many hurdles that were just like, needless and purely exist because no one thinks about the possibility that someone in the room is, is going through these things. Um, and it got to the point where my mom would, she just pull me out of school. She just, like, I just sit at home and I do my work and I'd learn the stuff and it was fine. Um, but they put me on the pill and it, it honestly changed. It saved the trajectory of my life. And that's what gets me when, when we talk about it in this very deeply politicized conversation where it's like you know women wanting to just exist in a remotely normal capacity shouldn't be political it just it's so damaging to each individual woman to all of her relationships with the people in her life and to society as a whole so I mean what is the statistic it's like if you let women do this if you as a country invest in family planning invest in making things like contraceptives readily available costs you maybe one dollar it saves the country seven dollars in different elements of, of welfare from unwanted pregnancy and then also all of the medical issues that arise from these things being untreated because they can have larger medical issues um and it's it's just smart it just makes sense and on a personal level it makes me really angry when I see these conversations happening this way because I just think of like young girls growing up in places that aren't like where I grew up, where they don't have a mother who went through very similar things and was very supportive and always just like believed me when I was having these symptoms, who didn't have a doctor that looked at a 13 year old and was like, we can just put you on the pill. There's no need for you to live like this. Um, and didn't, you know, bar that information from me because of their religious beliefs or whatever it is. Um, 
had a, an extended family who didn't think anything of it and was like, yeah, we just want you to like be okay. Um, and teachers who let me keep going to school and friends who didn't socially ostracize me or whatever it was like that I just existed in an environment where this was okay. Because if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't be at an Ivy League law school. We wouldn't have met at Cambridge. I wouldn't be doing any of the things that I've done because I physically wouldn't have been able to sit in the room long enough to have access to all of those opportunities. And that's uh, it's that wild. A serious loss to the world. And Not okay. no podcast. <laughs> no podcast. Oh Holy God. shit. <laughs> no. So like, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty invested in the outcome of, of these conversations. They're pretty, they're pretty outrageous to me. And until next time, this has been Chris and Heather. And this is the Overreacting Podcast. <laughs>